Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. Twenty twenty three has been a tumultuous year in the House of Representatives to say the least. Kevin McCarthy barely won the speakership and has been chained to the whims of the furthest extremes of his party. The theatrics of McCarthy and the GOP have often overshadowed the important work sitting before Congress, issues that affect us all. California Congressman Ro Khanna is focused on those issues, the important issues. And he joins us this week to discuss them. We want to start with your introduction of a bill to limit Supreme Court justices to 18-year terms. What are you calling for? Amy, most Americans have seen that the Supreme Court is just wildly out of touch with the facts of modern life. You know, these Republican officials just couldn't bear the thought of providing relief for working-class, middle-class Americans. At the same time, think about this. We all supported the Paycheck Protection Program, remember? PPP, you know, which was designed to help business owners who lost money because of the pandemic. It was a worthy program, but let's be clear. Some of the same elected Republicans, members of Congress who strongly opposed giving release to students, got hundreds of thousands of dollars themselves. It's time that we acknowledge something that may be obvious by now. We hold Republican Congresswoman Lauren Boebert to a different standard than every other elected official in Colorado. We hold Congresswoman Boebert to a far lower standard. According to several sources, multiple sources, who spoke to the Daily Beast, it appears that Marjorie Taylor Greene called Lauren Boebert a bitch. That's right, a little bitch. I'm Ro Khanna. I'm fighting for universal childcare at $10 a day, like in Canada and so many other Western democracies. Sorry, not sorry. Congressman Khanna, thank you so much for joining us today. I wanted to start with you telling our audience a bit about you, your upbringing, and what led you into the work that you do now. Lisa, what an honor to be on. Thank you for having me. Thank you for all of your leadership on issues as important as human rights and all of the gender equality and gun violence issues you've championed and immigration issues you've championed. For me, my inspiration was my grandfather, Amarnath Vidyalankar. He spent uh, years in jail alongside Gandhi as part of India's independence movement. When I was young, he would tell me stories about that struggle for human rights, for independence of a people. And that always stayed with me and gave me a sense that politics was a noble calling, that you could make a difference, not just in people's lives, but in the destinies of 
uh, whole nations based on the actions that people took. And that's what inspired me. And you've had an incredible career championing so many issues that I have also just admired your work from afar. I just think what you do is truly incredible and the dignity and integrity in which you do it is really rare to find in Congress, especially the Congress that we have. And I want to go back to the last Congress before McCarthy took the gavel. Tell us what it was like serving in the House when there was a united democratic control of Congress. It was the best moment of my public service career. I was in the Obama administration. I've now been in Congress seven years. I would say those two years were extraordinary. We got so much done. We passed the biggest climate change bill ever with the Inflation Reduction Act. And we're seeing battery plants, solar plants come up all over America because of that. We passed the CHIPS Act that I helped write, bringing semiconductor manufacturing back here. We passed the American Rescue Plan that put money in the pockets of working class Americans, of low wealth Americans that made such a difference for their ability to pay the bills, to help with child poverty, to have economic opportunity, and that grew the economy from the bottom up. We passed an infrastructure bill that helped rebuild America. So it was a moment where you felt you were doing things which makes public service worthwhile. And then you cut to, to use a term from my industry, you cut to watching the parade of failed votes for McCarthy as speaker and how he had to, in order to win the job, mortgage a house to a handful of the most extreme members of his party. Kevin McCarthy walks off the floor. No, he's, he's talking. Or he's, I'm sorry, he walks up the floor, rather. Matt Gates. he needed him to vote... Yes, not present. He's trying to convince him. He appears to be trying to convince Matt Gates to vote yes and not present. Or Boebert. Also, right, he, or, if he could get Lauren Boebert to change yep. from present. Or, yes, or convince. We haven't seen him doing this personally on the floor. He's obviously been doing it behind closed doors. But until this moment, we have seen his deputies do this. This is... This is it. I mean, this is do or die for him. How has that changed the way the House works? And what does it say about McCarthy, about the GOP, about our government in general, and about democracy? Well, it's changed the House, not just for the fact that we're no longer tackling climate, we're no longer helping working class Americans, we're no longer building infrastructure. It's also children the fact that we're basically distracted by issues that the American people don't really care about. We're talking about what books people should be reading in the service academies. And then you look at the polling and cadets and people coming into West Point, the Air Force Academy, the wokeness is ninth on the list of what they care about. They care about a lot of other things beyond that. So we are caught up in these manufactured culture wars that ordinary Americans aren't talking about, policing the type of diversity training, policing the type of curriculum or books. And we aren't focused on improving people's economic condition, getting them health care, getting them child care, building our manufacturing base, the, the things that really matter. You mentioned West Point and the Air Force Academy, which sort of leads to my next question, which is about military spending. Tell us about the scope of the military budget. 
it's way too high, almost approaching a trillion dollars. Here's what I don't understand, Alyssa. If you had an almost trillion dollar military budget, how is it that we're running out of artillery? This is the basics. The first thing you make if you're a military were bullets. And we can't afford and don't have enough bullets to give Ukraine the one place where we know there's an active war, and yet we're giving a trillion dollars to his defense budget, it's because of extraordinary price gouging. It's because you have an oil pressure switch that the Pentagon is paying $10,000 for, while NASA is paying $348 for it. It's because you've got Patriot missiles where Raytheon has admitted that they fleeced and overcharged the American public. And Lockheed and Boeing are making over 40% profits. There is price gouging, there's defense contractors ripping people off, and we're not focused on actually money going to our troops and protecting our national security. And this budget, this trillion dollars, how does that compare to other nations? Because I think it's important for people to be able to make the comparison. It's more than the next eight countries combined. And even if people say, well, look, you have to pay troops more here than in China, even accounting for that, it is way more. And we're not spending it on the right things. China is spending it on AI, on emerging technology, on the types of technologies that may give them an asymmetrical advantage. We're spending it too much on defense contractors, and people are profiting off it. And you were the sole no vote, the House Armed Services Committee on the military budget. Why is that? I was a sole no vote in committee. By the time it got to the floor, all my other Democratic colleagues joined me because they had anti-trans, anti-abortion anti-LGBTQ provisions in there by the time it got to the House. Meanwhile, far-right Republicans potentially grinding Washington to a halt and hurting military readiness, all over social issues here at home. The Republican-controlled House voted last night to include dozens of controversial amendments to the National Defense Authorization Bill, including limits to the DOD's diversity initiatives and the approval to roll back a Pentagon policy that guarantees service members access to abortion. Proposals that would have limited America's involvement in Ukraine were also put out there, but those amendments failed. But I voted on no one committee because I said, we need more accountability. You can't have this situation where all of this money is going to defense contractors, the defense department is getting fleeced, and, and there's no one saying, hold on, pause, watch 60 minutes. Let's have some accountability. And what do you think an appropriate level of military funding looks like, assuming that we then have the budget to fulfill all the needs that we have? I think we have to right-size it. I'm for spending whatever it's going to take to have a national security met. But I think what we have to look at, the question to ask is, how do we make sure that every bid has competition? How do we make sure that there are a panel of experts that allow for reimbursement where we're overcharged? How do we make sure that the bases we have overseas are serving strategic interests and are not relics of the Cold War? How do we make sure that the things we're buying are actually necessary for modern warfare as opposed to warfare in the 1970s and 1980s? And whatever that emerges, 
as I would support. But the problem right now is a total lack of transparency and accountability. You know what the argument is, or I shouldn't even say the argument, but the narrative is if you don't fully support the military as it exists right now, you're just unpatriotic, right? And how did the idea of patriotism get so crossed with the idea of the military? People will say we have serious threats. We do from Russia, from China. But I would say, are we spending it on the right things? How do we have a situation in this country where if the top 15 steel plants in America, nine of them are in China, not a single one in the United States? Why are we not talking about the hollowing out of our industrial base, our defense base? That's what the real weakness is. What's patriotic is to rebuild our industrial base, to spend on the types of things that are going to be needed in the 21st century. If you want to spend on AI, if you want to spend on submarines in the Pacific, if you want to ensure naval superiority in the Pacific, if you want to ensure some superiority in space, all of that is fine. But it's not patriotic to just rubber stamp budgets that are fleecing the American taxpayers. Truman became president because he stood up to profligate war spending and held people accountable during World War II. I think since the last time you and I spoke, there has also been another topic that I want to discuss with you that has risen to the surface, although I think you and I had this conversation years ago about the Supreme Court. Right. And I want to switch topics because I think everyone thought that us screaming about Kavanaugh and all of that era of placing judges on the Supreme Court, that our screams were just, you know, we're screaming into the wind. They thought that we were being alarmist. The court just rejected President Biden's student debt forgiveness plan. I want to just hear your scope of what the Supreme Court looks like right now and what these decisions mean for America. Well, it's an activist Supreme Court that is ideologically extreme and no longer deferring to the United States Congress. The United States Congress passed the HEROES Act in 2003. It was in the wake of 9-11. And the HEROES Act gave the president extraordinary power of forgiveness over student loans because we were just coming off of 9-11. We wanted our first responders, our national service men and women, to have relief on student loans. And the way that Congress wrote the statute was very broad. Now, if the justices thought that it was too broad, and maybe it was too broad, they could run for Congress and change it. What they can't do is hide behind in the Supreme Court and say, we don't like what Congress passed. They were too broad. We're going to change it. And so they're an activist court legislating from the bench. The court is very much a threat to democracy right now, because when you look at every single metric here, we have voting rights, which is already demolished. Um, but now they're attacked the very foundation of the government's ability to help people, to, to deal with climate change, to deal with economic dislocation, um, as was the basis for the student loan program. I think what people don't often realize is that the United States Supreme Court justices serve for life. And there is also almost nothing that can be done to overcome their decisions. Uh, when they issue a ruling on the Constitution, it's more or less final up and until we have a new court. Since they have life tenure, that doesn't happen in, except every other generation um, or a constitutional amendment, which is practically impossible to achieve in the American system. 
I made this point about them running for Congress, and uh, one of my friends, Ryan Grimm, pointed out that Roberts actually can't run for Congress probably because he lives in D.C., and D.C. is in the state. But the point is, that is the role of Congress. And they are very dangerous, and that's why I call for term limits for these justices. They're totally out of touch with modern life. Their decisions on college education are taking us back to a time where college campuses were for the wealthy and were largely white by rolling back student loans, by rolling back affirmative action. They are moving us to a time in rolling back reproductive rights where women didn't complete education, where women were paid less. They're really hurting the economic, social, racial progress that the country has made for the last 40 years. And they need to have term limits, 18 years and you're out. And this is something that has broad support of the American public. I first introduced it in 2020, and I've introduced it ever since then. And I'm hoping the president will run on this in 2024. It's amazing to me because when you think about how just a few years ago, the Trump-Ryan Congress gave a $1.7 trillion tax cut to the richest Americans and corporations that they own. And that is almost identical to the total student debt burden in America. And I just can't wrap my head around how Republicans can argue that we can afford to give that tax cut in 2017, but we can't afford student debt relief in 2023. You're absolutely right, And Here's the reality. A lot of the student loan debt isn't being repaid anyway. So people say, well, why does it matter? Well, because it's destroying people's credit. They're not paying it. They have debt collectors. It's harassing them. Their credit's destroyed. Now they can't buy a house. Now they can't start a business. Now they're reluctant to start a family. So it's not like you're bringing all this revenue back to the federal government. What you're doing really is providing people relief so that their lives aren't ruined because they aren't able to make student debt payments. And the reality is no other developed country that I know of forces people to go into massive debt simply to finish their education. It is outrageous. Where do you think this goes next? Where do you think student debt relief goes next? I'm glad that the president is invoking the Higher Education Act, but my plea to the administration has been, you have to stop the repayment and stop the accrual of interest come September. We can't have people start having to repay loans when we made a promise of forgiving them up till $20,000. And I know this personally, I've done well now in life and have been fortunate, but when I was in my 20s, I had over $150,000 of loans and those loans kept going up and up, even when you pay them because of the interest. That is a obscene burden on people, and we need to pause it until we can make uh, good on interest on our promise to forgive it for working in middle-class families. And I just want to go back to the ethics of it all. The court is not accountable to any ethics standards. We've seen that several conservative members of the court have accepted trips and other benefits from wealthy people with interests before the court. Is the Supreme Court legitimate anymore? It's got a crisis of legitimacy. It's got a crisis of public legitimacy. If you or I, Alyssa, were to have lunch 
I would insist on paying or getting separate bills, as would, by the way, most members of Congress, Republican and Democrat. They wouldn't let you buy lunch, let alone fly you out somewhere, let alone take you on fancy vacations, let alone pay for your kid's education. I don't understand how this is going on in the Supreme Court. They should come and testify before Congress. They need to adopt a ethics code of conduct, and there need to be term limits. There needs to be reform. If you want to make money, don't be on the Supreme Court. After being on the Supreme Court, you can go make millions of dollars in the private practice, but you can't have your cake and eat it too. This leads me, of course, to what is going on in the House. And I'm wondering if you think that the House has sort of lost all credibility as well, because I got to say, truly embarrassing things are happening in the House this term. You know, Marjorie Taylor Greene presented those naked photos of Hunter Biden on the House floor. I was mortified. Has the House lost all of its credibility? Well, we've lost standards of decency. We've lost standards of civility. We're doing outrageous things like censoring Adam Schiff for engaging in his democratic rights and democratic expression. For the party that lectures us about free speech, you're censoring someone who engaged in free speech. You may disagree with Adam Schiff, but he's done nothing wrong. So you have an assault on decency in the Congress, an assault on a rational debate in the Congress. And it's sad to see, but we will get past this. I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene doesn't speak for America and certainly doesn't speak for the next generation of members. And there are a lot of talented members, some on both sides, who are serious. And I do think they eventually will win the day. Today also marked a new low when pornographic images were paraded in this hearing room. Chairman Comer, last October, you told Time magazine that you were not interested in the sordid details of Hunter Biden's life. You were quoted as saying, quote, that's counter to a credible investigation. And I agree. Sadly, that is a reflection of how low some individuals here have been willing to go in their efforts to attack the president and his family. And frankly, I don't care who you are in this country. No one deserves that. It is abuse. It is abusive. I was trying to think as I was prepping for this interview about the House's just obsession with Hunter Biden. And if you've ever seen a video of Donald Trump Jr., I don't know. It's hard to imagine he is not a regular drug user. And I keep thinking about what would have happened if Pelosi's house held the kind of hearings into Trump Jr. that the McCarthy house is holding into Hunter Biden. I mean, could you imagine? It's sad because what we're doing is discouraging people from going into public life. Who would want this? Who would want their families, their kids subject to this kind of abuse? I never one time went after any of Donald Trump's children who were not in public office. Not once. If Ivanka and Jared weren't put in charge of Middle East peace, I wouldn't have criticized them. I never went after Trump's kids who weren't in public office. But obviously, when they put Jared in terms of Middle East peace, then it's fair game. Hunter Biden is a private citizen. He should not be the subject of congressional inquiries. There's a law enforcement process to deal with those issues that worked its way out. And it is shameful that they're bringing people's family members in. It causes a lot of anguish, I'm sure, to President Biden. In April, I'm sure you know this, the public's approval of Congress hit its historical low at 16 percent. What needs to happen to renew the American people's faith in Congress? First, focus on things that actually matter to people's lives. They cost too much to live in America right now. 
people's paychecks aren't going up, childcare costs too much, medical debt exists for even people who have health insurance. It costs too much in terms of education. It costs too much in terms of housing. We don't have enough good paying jobs. Those are the things that people talk about, and they don't see Congress addressing that. They don't see Congress addressing climate. They don't see Congress having any compromised rational proposal on immigration. That's what's going to change if they see Congress actually improving their lives, improving the country's lives. What gives you hope? The next generation. I'm so impressed by young Democrats around the country. I keynoted the young Democrats in Nevada recently. They get it on climate. They get it on gun safety. They get it on free public college and education. They get it on reproductive rights, abortion rights. They get it on gay rights, on trans rights. They want to build a multiracial, multi-ethnic democracy. And you see the young people in Congress. And I say, you know, when you look at a Delia Ramirez, a Maxwell Frost, a Jasmine Crockett, a Greg Kazar, not just the famous names we know, but all of these young, talented members in their 30s and 40s, I am so hopeful about the future of America. The future of America, I'm all in for President Biden, but the future of America is not Biden versus Trump. The future of America are the 30 and 40-year-olds that I'm serving with. If you want to glimpse what America will be. Yes, I didn't on this note. Look, we're in a Congress right now where you have someone who has family part of the occupied territories in the Middle East, and then you're sitting right next to members of Congress who trace their family's history back to the Holocaust. What other country in the world has people from all different backgrounds in the world sitting in the United States Congress? Our politics are difficult because we have such a diverse Congress today, more diverse, I would argue, than ever in our history and more diverse than any country in the world. And when we figure out how to do that, it's going to be a beautiful thing to see a multiracial, multi-ethnic democracy. Well, Congressman Kana, you give me hope. Thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Thank you, Alyssa. I love what you do. I look forward to your next visit to D.C. You know your voice is very important. Let's just get an overview really quickly of what this Republican House majority is doing. You know, we were warned uh, that they were insurrectionists, weirdos and freaks, that they would be reckless if they were given a little bit of power. Ed Luce, um, they've censored Schiff. They can't really tell us why other than he investigated what Marco Rubio's intelligence committee, Senate Intelligence Committee, called, quote, a grave counterintelligence threat to the United States of America. That's what Schiff was investigating. Let me say that again. He was investigating something that Marco Rubio's Senate Intel Committee said of Trump's 2016 uh, interactions with Russia. Manafort's high-level access and willingness to share information with individuals closely associated with the Russian intelligence services represented a grave counterintelligence threat. We need a Congress that functions. Throughout our history, we've regularly had split government, where one party controls the White House and another holds one or more branches of Congress. We've likely never had a Congress as dysfunctional as this one, one where it may not be able to do its most basic job, fund the government's work on behalf of the people. 
Certainly, we need people of intellect and good faith to decide where we need to invest our money, but the Republicans simply don't have those people. Rather than face the most important issues, they'd rather hold hearings into Hunter Biden or attack trans Americans or scream about drag queens. It's a national embarrassment. Until the GOP gets its house in order, it has no place controlling the order of the house. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson, audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski, and music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bulliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry, not sorry.